The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 20th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Tonight at the RNC, we meet the Republican nominee for vice president, as well as the man he endorsed to be the next president of the United States. That man is Ted Cruz. Cruz, by the way, hasn't endorsed... Donald Trump, so it's like a game of dysfunctional rock, paper, scissor, where no one beats pantsuit. Last night at the RNC, well, I had that rapid response spiel. Did you hear that? Check the feed. What I lose in the time it takes to marinate, we gain in beating Morning Joe to the punch by six hours. Take that, Mika Brzezinski. I will post one after tonight's festivities as well. But another thing happened at the RNC of note. The Republican Party admitted it was wrong, that they were the authors of the economic instability of the late aughties. Here's how it worked. Tucked away. One line of the Republican platform was the sentence saying that Republicans are now in favor of the reinstatement of the Glass-Steagall Act. Wow, they have never said as much before. They don't do anything in Congress that indicates they want Glass-Steagall back, but apparently they want Glass-Steagall back. It's right there in the platform. In other words, they were wrong. Glass-Steagall, that was the Depression-era law which separated commercial banks, investment banks, and insurance companies. It was repealed in 1999 by a law named the uh, graham leach Bliley Act. Those were three Republican members of Congress, and this act passed in the Senate with a vote of 53 Republicans wanting to do away with Glass-Steagall and 44 Democrats wanting to keep Glass-Steagall. There was one Democrat who voted with the Republicans. He was Fritz Hollings, Democrat of South Carolina. Yes, kids, there were Democrats of South Carolina back then. Now the House passed it. More Democrats joined them. Bill Clinton signed the bill. But make no mistake, this was a Republican-driven, anti-regulatory idea. And now, in wanting it back, the Republicans are saying they were wrong. By the way, this is not genuine. They just want to pretend to offer an alternative to the current regulations, Dodd-Frank, which actually do something, unlike Glass-Steagall, which is old and really not applicable to modern times. And if you did try to apply it, you'd have more trouble and more headaches than solutions. Anyway, it is nice to hear someone admit they made a mistake, a major, major blunder, especially when that someone is not the in-house writer for the Trump family. They say the pen is mightier than the sword, and Meredith MacGyver fell on both of them when she took the hit for the Melania-Trump plagiarism debacle. She is their in-house writer, their family amanuensis. Who knew the rich had such staffing needs? Who knew those positions were even open? We'll have to rethink all our Agatha Christie stories. The butler did it. The cook did it. No, the family writer did it. It was Agatha herself throwing suspicion on the butler. At least, that is how I now read the great novel, Murder on the Orient Express, written by Melania Trump. On the show today, well, I already spieled, you heard that this morning, but there is so much going on in the world, where to put it, where to put it, the credits. But first, a history of white trash. That's not a very nice thing to call someone. Exactly. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. 
I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Waste people. Off scourings, lubbers, bog trotters, rascals, rubbish, squatters, crackers, clay eaters, tackies, mudsills, briarhoppers, hillbillies, low downers, degenerates, white trash. That brings us to the title of the book, White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. Nancy Eisenberg, 400 years, takes about 400 pages and really does a dissection on this phenomenon that maybe we're too casual and too willing to just toss off. Oh, I come from poor white trash or he's poor white trash. Nancy Eisenberg previously wrote a book about Aaron Burr. She's a teacher and professor at LSU. Hi, thanks for coming in. Hi, nice for having me. Is your book mostly about a myth? Well... It's actually, it does two things. One is to challenge certain myths. And we have a whole host of myths. One is the idea that we're an exceptional people, that at the time of the American Revolution, we broke away from the class system, and that we guarantee a certain level of social mobility that wasn't possible in old Europe. The truth is, as I show over and over again, each generation, not only do they come up with a new set of terms, slurs, insults, to demarcate and diminish the poor, class issues actually were at the center of political debate at crucial moments, such as westward expansion, the sectional crisis, the Civil War, Reconstruction, the New Deal. So at the same time, we want to say the class doesn't matter. The fact that it was such a hot, controversial issue means that we do think about class and we are a very class-conscious society. Is one of the reasons that this term, this invective obtains, is one of those reasons that so many people who could be described by it wear it almost proudly? I think more so than other kind of ethnic slurs. It's really mixed, and that's what's interesting about it. There are moments when it appeals to a more populist rhetoric. I talk about Andrew Jackson Mm -hmm. and how he was associated with coming from cracker country, the southern back country, and this idea of the common man. Even though he was a rich slave owner, like not just a slave owner, you know, plantations and the richest man in Tennessee. You bring it up to... Uh, I didn't know this, but in his primary campaigns, Jimmy Carter was doing the same thing, wearing the cloak of the common man. And in doing so, it's not just I'm common, I'm not highfalutin, but pretty often people will say either specifically I'm white trash or, yeah, actually I come from trailer trash. And then the, the term obtains in a way that a slur against a Hispanic would not. No one would say that if they were a Hispanic politician. No, it's really weird because I do highlight, I mean, white trash, if we go back to the 19th century, or particularly if we go all the way back to British colonization, was a very negative slur. Mm-hmm. But what we do see in the 20th century are these populist moments, but particularly from the 1970s. That's where we see the rise of redneck roots. And certain terms like redneck has been seen as slightly not as low as white trash. And that even that distinction, I mean, if we go back to Harry Beecher Stowe and her novel Dread, she distinguished between mean whites and pathetic white trash. The idea that there's a distinction there is important, but also the idea that in the 70s, suddenly Americans were desperate to find an authentic identity. We had the desire to look back on the Jewish ghetto. We had a desire to Alex Haley's roots. So suddenly white trash or redneck roots was also something that was going to be rediscovered in the hills of Appalachia. 
Right. And as black is beautiful became a phrase and as, you know, Jewish people were discovering their roots and maybe stopping the trend of changing the names and dropping the its or the wits uh, from the ends of their names, white people, poor southern white people, maybe even not so poor, they needed something to identify with because what's whiteness? It's Nazism or supremacy or nothingness in America, which is a consequence of a lot of things. One of the things is that you're a majority, but it's easier to say I'm a redneck, that's identity, than I'm a white person. What I found really unusual, this term that began in the 70s called upscale rednecks, Mm -hmm. and this is the idea about social mobility. And I love this phrase, like, we like the ghetto when it's something you look back on, like if it's in the past, if it's distant. So if you've actually experienced social mobility, then you can romanticize your And you say, I don't forget where I came from, but past came from. <laughs> but then you can at the same time, it doesn't mean that people who have risen up the ladder are more empathetic or sympathetic to the poor. And also what is so weird about the 70s and 80s to even turn it into what I call a leisure identity, this idea that we can all be a redneck. We put on the blue jeans as Jimmy Carter did. We wear the Bubba cap as <laughs> Trump does. But it's very convenient because you, you can wear it and you can take it off when you don't want to have that identity, which when it comes to class, is not true. Well, don't all ethnic groups have this? I mean, well-off middle class or upper middle class black kids in the suburbs, you know, wearing the garb of gangster rap. In fact, many gangster rappers themselves doing that. And I think it is part of this desire to be authentic because what happens, even though middle class assimilation means you have to fit in and that you appropriate the identity of being middle class. And we think of that as bland. We think of that as boring. So the idea of being authentic means you want to find something that somehow makes you more interesting. Or as I talk about Elvis, I mean, Elvis is such an amazing example because he was the first really pop star who made the idea of being white trash cool. And he was called a hillbilly cat. So it was perfect. He he borrowed his musical forms from African-American music, but then he was also associated with the hillbilly. Born in a sharecropper's, uh, you know, shack from Mississippi. In America, the Irish were once reviled and then they rose. The Germans were once reviled. The Catholics, like we scarcely even rem- remember. We almost no parts of our society feel this. Why do the people that are sometimes called white trash, are they immune from this rise in fortunes? Part of the reason this category, I think, has been reshaped and been dominant is this recognition that we do have a portion of the population that has been poor and that we can't have a middle class without a lower class. But also, I think what I try to highlight is that this comes out of our rural past. Mm -hmm. It's reminding us, and as I say over and over again, it's from the British past, how do we measure class identity? Where you live, your home. You know, the poor, they lived in shacks. They lived in shebangs. They lived in trailers. So that's a marker. The status of your children, the health of your children. Are they heirs? Can you pass anything to your children, the poor? No, you can't. Um, The other thing is the bodily measures of class. The same way we think about race and we skin color. What was amazing is that by the 1840s, you know, white trash are turned into these clinical subjects where what's always emphasized is the tallow yellow color of their skin. The children are decided as old before their time, wrinkled, dwarfed. Well, they were malnourished probably. Right. They, yeah, they were yeah. suffering from pellagra, but yeah. no one then knew that, yeah. pellagra and hookworm. But that idea that we know the poor by looking at them. And I think that's still true today. No matter, yes, we're, we're, we don't have men in suits and ties and women's in high heels and fancy hats, but still the importance of how class is worn 
um, and and is, a, is is measured by both social breeding and behavior, the way you talk, your education, the way you dress. So you say it's largely, you say uh, white trash largely are not a uh, ethnic group, but there are some scholars who say it's largely the the Scotch-Irish. Um, Jim Webb, former senator, wrote books about this and the history of many of the people of Appalachia or the people of the Carolinas are from these specific areas in England. But that's not as true as it no, is when I we think talk that's about Germans. Been, been, yeah. The problem with that, there was a historian who made that claim and tied it to crackers, and it's just not true because mm-hmm. this is why I spend a lot of time analyzing what these words mean, where do they come from. The word cracker is so fascinating because it comes from an English slur for crack-brained, which means idle-headed. And therefore, and I found an old husbandry manual, manual going all the way back to the 1500s where it says, uh, you know, 20 crackers is worth one haymaker. So it's not an ethnic identity. It's associated with being lazy, being idle, not being productive. Or the, the another term that was popular in the 1700s and 1800s was the term louse cracker, which means you're lice ridden. So this is not an ethnic identity. The, the scholar who focused on ethnic identity focused more on the idea that they were loud and noisy and boasting. But that, again, is not something restricted to the Scotch-Irish. What's so funny is the scholar who promoted that was writing right at the t- same time in the 70s and the 80s when people wanted to embrace an ethnic identity and make it not about class. There is a huge difference, though, with what we call white trash and other ethnic groups. And we've been talking about parallels and black power. But, you know, if, if, if white people become wealthy, then they cease to become white trash, or they can if they choose to, whereas that, could, that is never true with the economic fortunes of a black person or a Hispanic person. Well, it's really mixed because I do want to say you can't equate white privilege with class privilege. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the problems we have. We have, over was it, 17.4 million people, uh, whites who are below the poverty line. So we have to recognize that there is white poverty. There's always been a large percentage of white poverty. But I do think what we have to recognize is that even what we talked about at the beginning, even when someone does become highly successful. I talk about LBJ and the way he was carefully coached. Reduce your drawl or make sure you don't use alliteration because that's what these wild Southern politicians did when they were entertaining their audiences. The marks of class, even for whites, they don't necessarily always escape them. And they're very conscious of it. I think anybody who does experience social nobility... LBJ was always scared that it was going to sneak through. Right. I mean, I think people who do move up are very aware that they don't quite fit in. What I want to say is I just want us to remember that that class needs, we need to pay attention, even when we talk about the African-American community, that there are differences in terms of class. I mean, even when we talk about immigration, when you get off the boat, if you're in steerage or you're in a, you know, a private expensive uh, room in the, the the ship, you don't start at the same place. Right. But we like to imagine that somehow 
that everyone who gets off the boat suddenly, if the wealthier person rises up, that shows social mobility. It is understandable, though regrettable, that uh, rednecks, people we call white trash for hundreds of years of American history, would primarily identify themselves as, well, we're not black, and they would resent black people uh, even more. But now, in 2016, do you think that it's possible that there'll be almost a confluence, that working-class white people will begin to see more themselves more in common with working-class or lower-class black people than upper-class white people? Because we don't see it now. Like, Right now in the presidential race, they keep talking about the working class white people. You know, black people are much more likely to be working class than white people, and yet there's a div- divergence, and they're voting differently. So do you think uh, eventually there'll be more of a kinship, class-based kinship, as opposed to race-based animosity? This is something that's happened in history. I mean, first of all, you're right. The, the, the way the media has portrayed the working class as white and male is wrong. I mean, women were factory workers. They worked in textile and the same way, if you look at who's the member of unions right now, a high percentage of African-Americans, high percentage of women. So that's a trope. It's yeah. a trope. And what it taps into is this long history of how politicians have accentuated this rivalry, this contest between blacks and whites, because the history of the relationship between poor whites and poor blacks is much more complicated. In the antebellum period, Poor whites often created an underground criminal network with slaves. By the 1930s, for example, poor whites and blacks often lived right next to each other. And they did have social relationships. I mean, one of the things historians have written about is the populist movement, where there was, was an attempt for, for poor whites and you know, free blacks, hardworking blacks in the late 19th century to align their interests and talk about class. And what happened? There was this extreme backlash and effort to undermine the movement. And this is it's, – it's always difficult. It's a difficult thing where for the elite – it is clearly in their best interest to pit the poor against each other. And this is something other historians have talked about, even in the North, this idea that you don't want class revolution. I mean, this is what I, I write that was the greatest, one of the major fears of the Confederacy. All right. One more strain of questions. I started reading your book the day the Supreme Court came down with its uh, decision in Fisher, affirmative action. Do you think there should be a class-based component to affirmative action, if indeed you think affirmative action at all should continue? Well, that's what's so interesting. There's a, a, a person who I've become a very good friend with. She's a, a law professor at uh, UC San Diego. Her name is Lisa Pruitt, and she's written extensively on this topic. The original decision as it was written was to include class. Mm -hmm. And I think it raises a really, and she's done all the research to document how difficult it is for people coming from the lower class, working class, uh, to not only just get into college, but to stay there. And this is why we have to take into account when we look at the Ivy League, who are in the Ivy Leagues? It is children principally of middle, upper middle elite classes. Not only do we have to rethink the question of affirmative action, but we have to realize I think class should be a component because even if you're going to talk about granting assistance to poor blacks, we have to take class into account. Well, it sounds like you think that the idea of privilege, which is gained a lot of credence is a useful one. It should just be expanded to include class. But there are a lot of people who say when you do that, you water down what we're talking about privilege. Like you're necessarily hurting black people if you start injecting a class discussion into it. 
Well, I'm not sure. You know, I think it's really complicated, and that's why I suggest everyone go look at Lisa Pruitt's article. Mm-hmm. But I do think this is this is that zero sum game again. The assumption that if you prov- if you start thinking about class, that will detract from extending those privileges uh, to African Americans and other minorities, and that's the problem. I think when we pit, we assume that there's only a limited amount of resources, and if we start or if we make that shift that idea that it undermines what has been accomplished so far. And that's why I think it's complicated. But I think we have to realize that class is a factor in, de- in shaping privilege in a really significant way in our country. Nancy Eisenberg, author of White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. Uh, they're too four untold because she wrote the book. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Somebody help me get out of Louisiana. Just help me get to Houston town. And that's it for today's show. The gist is produced by Mary Wilson and the entire country of Russia could get banned from the Olympics for doping. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Turkey has purged 60,000 people post-coup, and they could get kicked out of NATO. Andy Bowers, the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, and an axe and knife-wielding teen attacked a train in Germany. Five hospitalized, two critically, yet no one has died. It just goes to show that ISIS is everywhere, and good thing for those Germans, guns aren't also. The gist, I guess we're the PM version now. The early morning hours will have more Republican hot takes. So China lost a case against the Philippines in The Hague. The case was about the South China Sea, so protesters in China are targeting KFCs. Because Americans put Filipinos up to it and KFC is American. Anyway, it all comes down to this banner. What you eat is KFC. What is lost is the face of your ancestors. Umperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>